Our message tonight is called bittersweet. I don't know how you feel about the term bittersweet, but it makes me think of chocolate and gets me excited immediately. (laughs) Bitter and sweet are not things that normally go together. You don't normally describe something as both bitter and sweet. Well, we're contemplating that. Turn with me to Psalm 33. We're going to pick up in verse 12. Some of you who were in the Monday Night Foundations teaching, I taught for several hours on a topic that I will touch on briefly tonight. If you hear elements of, uh, of it, it's meant to be repetitious. Those of you that were not in the Monday Night teaching, you would be blessed to find someone who was. In Psalm 33, verse 12, Blessed is the nation who is God. Whose God is the Lord, rather. Let me get that right. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh. The people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees how much of mankind? From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. Church, there is nothing that has happened in your life that has escaped his notice. Not anything. There is no nation on the planet that is God forsaken. It's never happened. There are places that are church forsaken. There are places where men have shirked their responsibility. There are times in our life where we have sinned or someone has sinned against us. But there is never a time when God's watchful eye is not upon mankind, every single branch of mankind, considering everything they do. That's a very heavy statement. I don't even consider everything I do. Have you ever driven somewhere? I know this is a generation that doesn't know how to drive a stick shift anymore. But I've often driven 30 or 40 miles and didn't remember shifting through any of the gears, and yet I know it happened. I don't even consider everything that I do. But the Lord considers the thoughts, the attitudes of our heart. The scripture even says the motives behind our thoughts. Can we say that that is a God who is interactive with his creation? A God who is intertwined with his creation. Consider 2 Chronicles 16 verse 9. This is a prophecy given to Asa. It ends negatively. It says, for the eyes of the Lord reigns throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. I'm not as concerned with what Asa did that was foolish. Consider that principle for a minute. God's eyes are ranging the earth. That implies some effort on his part, doesn't it? He's considering what you're doing. I'm not going to get into an Armenian and a Calvinistic debate because they were both wrong. But I'm telling you, The Lord is looking into your life. That's an interesting thing. Why does his eyes range the earth? Why do his eyes? Because he wants to strengthen those who are committed to him, to his purposes. When the Lord's eyes are searching your life, what do they find? Do they find you're very committed to your purpose? And if God's purpose and your purpose happen to line up, then you do it. Or do they find that God's purposes are above all in your life? That the plan of God for your life has taken precedent in every area? 
Consider Romans 8, 28. Now, most of you have seen this quilted on some old lady's pillow. For in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This doesn't say that God takes good and works it for everything. It says, for we know that in all things, God works. Do you hear the difference? Something may feel bitter. It may feel terrible. You may hate what is happening. But God works for the good of those who? Who does he work for the good of? Who have been called according to his purpose. When the Lord's eye is upon you, when you have been called according to his purpose, he is seeking men and women who worship him in spirit and truth. He is seeking those whose hearts are committed to him that he might place his strength in you. And in that setting, no matter what you're facing, Romans 8.28 says, he causes it to work for the good of those who love him. That is an incredibly broad, all-encompassing kind of promise. This means when you get to work and your boss had a bad day and he fires you, God can make that work out good for you. Not just can he, he has promised to. This means that when you sin and you do something yucky and now you have to reap consequence because you did something yucky, he will make it work out good for you. Think of how much of your life has been spent contemplating what should be the simplest question on the planet and ultimately is irrelevant. Am I in this situation because of the devil or the Lord? Am I in this situation because I sinned or someone else? If you're called of God and you love him, what difference does it make how you got where you were at? What matters is what you're going to do with what we're where you're at. Turn with me to Exodus 15. There are so many beautiful layers to the story in Exodus 15. But tonight I want to just take one small portion. Those of you that are in the Shemot study on Monday nights know that we often do three three three-hour classes on every chapter of Exodus. It took us three hours to cover five verses Monday night. I don't enjoy skimming over the scripture. I believe it's a treasure to be mined. I think you can mine it your entire life and never reach the bottom of it. We are not a surfacey kind of church. And having said that, I don't want to teach a three-hour class tonight. There's a very simple concept and yet something so profound that I want to make sure that if this was the last message that I got a chance to preach to this body, I left you with. It's not the last message. Will not be the last message. But were it the last message, I would want you to remember this. So let us pick up in the 22nd verse and consider the setting. In Exodus 12, they were covered under the blood of the Lamb. In Exodus 13... They were sanctified in their houses, going through their houses with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, getting rid of everything that didn't belong. In Exodus 14, they are passing through the Red Sea like a baptism. 
in Exodus 15 is their very first experience to come out of the baptismal waters and see a spiritual cloud that is going to lead them to the mountain of God. Very parallel to our lives. But most specifically, in Exodus 15, they have just finished the first praise song ever written as recorded in the Bible. The war song of Moses. The praise song of God. It's extraordinary. The first song in the Bible is in Exodus 15. The last song sung by the redeemed is in Revelation 15. Both are authored by Moses, but Revelation 15 says Moses and the Lamb. Of course, Exodus 15 is also about Moses and the Lamb. It's beautiful. They've just finished praise. Wow, how wonderful was praise tonight. May we, may we never lose our wonder, right? Did you feel the presence of God in here? We're going to go back to that in a minute. How often, though, do we go from a praise song to the living God to the situation that Israel finds themselves in? It's verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. Somebody say, no water. When they came tomorrow, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place was called Mara. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Do you mean to tell me that they went from praising the living God who just destroyed the most uh, advanced nation on the planet to grumbling and it only took three days? Those of you in the Monday night class, I showed you seven examples of three days in the first five books of the Bible, in the Torah, that all represent the distance between life and death. How many times in a three-day period your whole life can turn around? Never has that been more true than in the first century. The distance between a Wednesday crucifixion and a first day of the week resurrection is three days. Jesus said that it would be like Jonah was in the belly of the great fish. He would be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. I don't want to sound like a football coach. But you really never would know how close you got to success if you give up before you get there. What if what you're enduring right now is going to change in every possible way in the next few minutes, but you quit now? I'm curious, will the Son of Man find faith on the earth when he returns? Will he find faith in you? Does he see you committed to his purpose when things are to your liking? Does he find you committed to his purpose when things are not to your liking? I found out it's easy to motivate people. You put something in front of them they want. Unfortunately, life is full of things we must do that we do not want. Are you less motivated for the things that you do not want? Israel is now in a position that they would rather not have chosen. Have you ever been in one of those? Put your finger right here. Turn backwards a couple pages. Look at Exodus 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though it was... Do you mean to tell me God is not interested in the short way, the quick way, the easy way? 
He's not interested in expediting your path to glory. He may take you upon a long, difficult, hard road. Why? You know, it's interesting because Israel finishes singing the first praise song written in all of the Bible. They're dancing with tambourines. They can still see their enemy sinking into the depths. They are glorious and triumphant. And they go immediately into a place of grumbling. And why? Because they do not like the path that God has brought them upon. How long have they had to struggle? Three days. Did you promise the Lord your good days? Or did you promise the Lord your life? Did you promise the Lord till death do us part? Or did you promise the Lord that as long as you would inherit Disneyland at the end and receive heaven on earth now, you would follow him as long as he made you rich? God has always redeemed his people the same way. Through terrible tribulation. It has always been difficult. But his people have always been distinct in it. Because in the middle of their bitterness, there is something sweet about them. They have ingested the word of God. They have a promise that no one else has. I want you to consider for a second their position. They don't have water. How serious is that? I'm not suggesting that your problems are not serious. I'm not suggesting that you are not having real issues. I can't tell you the number of times that the path that the Lord himself has led us on has put us on the verge of irresponsibility. Like, is this faith? Or is this just stupidness? And the answer might have been yes. (laughs) Who leaves a job that pays well, where people think you're doing well, that you enjoy doing, because he believes God said so? Who does something like that? Who sells the nicest house they've ever had? Who moves to a place to go to a little storefront church? Because God said so. Oh, wow, when people applaud what we do, we're excited. Everybody can clearly see, I'm God's man of power for this very hour. But what happens when no one is applauding what you're doing? What happens when you literally find yourself without water? When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water. Because it was bitter. That is why the place was called Mara. Sometimes in Hebrew, there's this sounds like game. You know, it's like this word sounds like this word. This doesn't sound like anything. It literally means bitter. You ever wonder why people name things what they do? I mean, it was named bitter, which means bitter. Young man named Ichabod. His name means the glory departed. Thanks, mom. Right? Reading about Ruth's uh, husband today, Malhan. His name means invalid. Thanks, Mom. I was reading about Kilion and Orpha. That's Ruth's sister and brother-in-law. Kilion means wasting away. Again, thanks, Mom. They came to a place that the whole world could agree is bitter. And who brought them there? 
God did. See, this is a very important truth to come to. You are where you are at because God has allowed you to be there. And if He is the good God that we just praised, the good God that we just sang about, if Romans 8.28 is true, if 2 Chronicles 16.9 is true, if Psalm 33.12-15 is true, then He has considered you carefully. He has considered your heart. He has designed your purpose. And He brought you to where you were at Because that's where he wants you to be. Oh, that's profound. Because you spend most of your life wondering, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? I am being. I'm a human being. And what I'm doing right here is, first of all, existing in the moment, in the place, in the time, in the location, in the exact spot that my loving Father has put me And my response to my stimuli all around me says everything about what I actually think about him. Let's consider that for just a moment. If you hate the spot that God brought you to, then what are you ultimately saying about him? I don't trust your judgment. I don't really think you have my best interest in mind. Lord, if you understood me, you would not have put me in this position. Some of you are more nuanced than that. I get it. You say, I must have sinned. And now, that's why I'm in this position. You're right. Your sin is so much bigger than God that it invalidates all of the scripture that says he's ordered your footsteps. Of course that's not right. Say, oh, well, it's the devil opposing me. Look. Have you read the end of the book? Not a mighty angel, not an extraordinary angel, a regular angel binds the devil for a thousand years. He's not a problem for God, trust me. He's a problem for you. In fact, the Lord's just let this rabid dog off the chain for a while to demonstrate something about God's own character that he can take weak, little old you made in his image and triumph over Satan. It's like letting your little brother's little brother beat up the bully. Church, what does your attitude say about what you think about God? See, I found out something in reading about Mara. It's really kind of incredible. When they came to Mara, they came, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place was called Mara. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Um, who did they grumble against? But who's their real problem with? Remember that next time you criticize me, especially if you do it on Facebook in front of the whole world. Then Moses cried out to the Lord. Now, let me ask you, is Moses' problem with God? Who's Moses' problem with? But who does Moses cry out to? When you have a problem with people, you do well to cry out to God. When you have a problem with God and you cry out to people, it doesn't help you at all. When you have a problem with people and you cry out to people, it doesn't help you at all. Can I tell you, we don't need to keep going back to the same diseased well looking for affirmation. Maybe what we need 
is to go to our Father and say, thank you for putting me in this position. It must be exactly what I need. Help me get this right. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. Now, had you been in that meeting the other night, you would find out that this word is Yara, that there are seven examples in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus alone of Yara meaning instructed, meaning taught, meaning directed. It has a whole lot more to do with a revelation than it has to do with simply being shown. But I don't want to go through those now. Take it, take it at face value that the Lord showing him a piece of wood and him throwing it into the water and the water becoming sweet actually happened. Take that just at face value. It happened. Secondly, the God of the universe who considers everything that you do probably was not going, look, Moses, a toothpick. He probably was not just kicking around the idea of a tree or a piece of wood for no reason. He probably had a purpose for exactly what he was doing. Can you say amen to that? Can you sympathize with the fact that nobody understood that purpose? Okay, now put yourself in this position for just a second. You've been praising God. You're excited. You love him and he's your savior. That ought not be hard for many of you to put yourself in that position, huh? Now you've come to an extraordinary difficulty that you don't understand and you don't know why it's happening. Can you empathize with why they might be grumbling? You need water when you need water. I don't want to go through all of the science behind that, but I can tell you the first day is rough. The second day is nearly impossible. And if you're reaching the third day without water, you drink whatever you can find. I know because I've done it. They were desperate. And in their desperation, they neglected something. Not seeking the Lord. Not understanding God's will. And grumbling. Would any of those things help them? Think on this for a second. They had Moses there. They had the piece of the wood already there. See, God didn't cause the wood to appear. He showed Moses a piece of wood that was already there. They had a relationship with their God. They had a prophet of God. And they had the healing instrument right there. But they couldn't see it. So to them, the place was bitter. But what was it after God did his work? So whether it's bitter or sweet might depend upon how much of God's plan you can see. And might not depend at all upon your circumstances. See, it is bitter during the three days we're waiting for Jesus to raise from the dead. But for God, it was never in question. He, he wasn't waiting to see if the son would come out of the grave. He wasn't going, golly, I hope this works out. He always had all of the pieces right there. It's us who struggled to see how they go together. Turn with me to the book of Ruth. Say there when you were there. While you're turning to Ruth and I'm waiting to hear the whole room say there, I want to tell you that Ruth takes place between Joshua and Samuel. Ruth is... The time period uh, between the conquest of the land and the judges. In the book of Ruth, is everybody there? I want to read to you the first chapter, the 16th verse. Let me let, uh, give you the setting for this quickly. The setting is a woman named Naomi is married to a man named Elimelech. Elimelech dies. 
And he had two sons, Mahlon and Kilion. And they had two wives, Ruth and Orpha. How many of you know who Oprah Winfrey is? Her mama couldn't figure out how to spell or write the word Orpha, and she wrote Oprah, and that's how we get that name. What must their life have been like? Look at verse 1 before we get to 16. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. If you keep reading, you find out it's 10 years. That's not a while. That's more than three days, isn't it? 10 years. Now think on Naomi's predicament for a minute. First husband dies. She's a lone Jewish woman in a foreign land, and her husband's dead. But hey, she's got her sons. They married Moabitess women, but she's got them. Then both sons die. Perhaps she could have rethought those names, you know, invalid and wasting away. Those uh, don't exactly inspire confidence. Do you think maybe she's sitting there going, I'm cursed? Look at the position I'm in. God hates me. My life is bitter. Well, while you're thinking about that, look at verse 16, 15, 16. But but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord... Deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Look at her heart here. Don't call me Naomi. She told them, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. Before I read any more, if you didn't know the story... You might go, wow, she lost a husband. She lost two sons. She lost one of her daughter-in-laws. I understand she has a right to feel this way. You ever tempted to think that? I have a right to feel this way? You know what she's overlooking? She has Ruth standing with her in the very next verse, chapter 2 and verse 1. Now, now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was... A verse before Naomi declares her bitterness, she has the undying loyalty of Ruth, a foreigner who says, I want to be just like you. I want your God to be my God. I will stay with you until you die. A verse after her bitterness... We have the introduction of the kinsman redeemer who will save them. 
Ruth is standing sandwiched between God's plan for salvation for her. And she does not understand that she's anything but afflicted. I want to tell you that's not just Naomi's position. That's your position. Every one of you. It's my position. We have an inability to see what God sees. So we will have to trust what God says. Can I tell you it's not just her salvation? Read the end of the book. Ruth marries Boaz. They have a child. The child is credited as if he were Naomi's son as well as Ruth's. Stays within the family of Israel. And in that lineage, we get King David. And further down the lineage, we get King Jesus. The Savior of the world is being planned in the midst of her affliction. But she thinks she's cursed rather than blessed. Please don't sit here and think how stupid Naomi is. Look, these things were like looking through a foggy, dim mirror to her. You have them actually revealed and do exactly the same thing. And I have to. It's why the message of the kingdom is always repent. The kingdom is at hand. It is always that nothing's wrong with God's plan. Nothing's wrong with God. Something is wrong with us. This reveals a truth. Let's talk about how we initially accept the word for just a second. Put Psalm 19 and verse 10 on the board. In Psalm 19 and 10, speaking of God's law, God's ordinances, they are more precious than gold, much pure gold. They are sweeter. Somebody say sweeter. Sweeter Sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. Psalm 119, verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Is there anybody in here that wants to argue about the sweetness of God's word? And yet it was God's word that sent them straight into the desert, straight tomorrow where there was no water. So is it sweet or is it bitter? It is bittersweet. In fact, all of us hear the word and the thought of it the intellectual part of it, even the revelation that goes off in your heart. (laughs) That's good until what happens? You have to live it. You have to be tested in it. You have to act as if something you cannot see is true. And then all of a sudden, it becomes bitter. Jeremiah. Look at Jeremiah, the 15th chapter. When you get there, find the 15th verse. Say there when you were there. You understand, O Lord, remember me and care for me. Avenge me on my persecutors. You are long-suffering. Do not take me away. Think of how I suffer reproach for your sake. When your words came, I ate them. When they were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. When Jeremiah became a prophet, he had said God's word was sweet. But now what is he praying? Oh God, vindicate me. This is horrible. I received your word and this is hard. Avenge me. These are the darkest moments in his life. 
How is it that the word is sweet when you receive it and difficult to carry it out? It's the same reason that so many times the seed falls on soil but doesn't end up producing a crop. Birds come and steal it and the person's never saved. Or maybe they're saved but their roots don't go very deep and they burn out just from having to endure. Or maybe they get roots and they start to grow but the deceitfulness of wealth and the the cares and worries of this world choke them, making them unproductive. It is truly a noble heart that has the kind of soil that says, Lord... If I need to do weeding today and feeding tomorrow, then amen. If I need to uproot rocks, then amen. If I need to fight with the birds, then amen. Whatever you bring my way, I consider your will and I'm going to do it with a smile and give you a return for your investment. But can I tell you that is not what most do. So this is an important time for you. Do you want to go a respectable distance in the eyes of your peers or do you want to gain the favor of the Lord Almighty by always being obedient to it? Because it's getting less and less difficult to regain the respect of your peers. Now Christians can apparently dress in lingerie in movies and do soft pornographic scenes and still be Christians. They can curse on rap albums and still be Christians, you can be exactly like the world and still be a respectable, fine, upstanding Christian. You can even run for president if you can't quote one verse from the Bible correctly and live like hell all the way to heaven. Not hard to gain the respect of anybody's peers anymore. Is your life the kind that God wants to strengthen? Because his eyes are considering everything that you do. I believe that he brought you here because he wants to strengthen you. I believe that he brought you here precisely because here is exactly where you're supposed to be. I've been one of those pastors that truthfully it's false humility. It's not a, it's not genuine at all. So I'm just going to out myself and tell you, Hey brother, look, all that's important is that you serve God somewhere. Go find a good church. No, I don't believe that at all. I really don't. I believe that if God brought you here and you have been impacted by the power of the gospel in this place, it's because here is where he wants you. And I'm going to stop being shy about saying it because I've observed something. When you go here and there and everywhere, you don't go anywhere with God. But one man dedicated to the position that God put him in, embracing the adversity as a teacher and a trainer, Oh, that man can grow up to do amazing things for God. You know how I know it? Because we're five churches now and I'm seeing it. We're on five continents now and I'm seeing it. And the difference between those who do and those who only talk a good game is how they handle the bitter waters. Speaking of bitter waters. Let's go to Exodus three, or Ezekiel 3. Get some writings and prophets in our law. In Ezekiel 3, verse 1, 
And he said to me, son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll, then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. Why? Because it came from God. Because he knew it was right. Because it's beautiful. Then he said to me, son of man, now go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. You are not being sent to a people. You are not being sent to a people of obscure speech and difficult language, but to the house of Israel. And he lays out his message for him. Do you know that he says that it becomes bitter in his stomach? What an interesting thing. Something can be sweet in your mouth and bitter in your stomach. In Revelation 10, in verse 9, check this phrase out. It's exactly the same throughout the Bible. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be... Apparently the word of God is sweet initially. But it is a bitter, difficult task to carry it out. Of course, what could be being communicated through all of these things? If when you get to the waters of Mara, they are bitter. <clears throat> Salvation that got you out of Exodus was sweet. Then you got to the water, and the water was bitter. But God changed it, and it became sweet. If Jeremiah's ministry was that he received the word and it was sweet and then his life became very bitter and difficult. How do you think of Jeremiah now though? Oh, with the sweetest of heavenly blessings. If David in Psalm 19 or, or Psalm 119, either one, could say that the word of God was sweeter than honey to him, but let me ask you how difficult was David's life? But how sweet is the end of his life? Do you see a pattern emerging? When we consume the word of God, of course we love the revelation. Of course we love what God says to us. But it is hard to walk it out. That's why you count the cost when you receive the revelation. And you decide that the answer is yes before you know what the question is. How many times have you heard me say that? You decide that your life belongs to him and you take no part of it back. If I could tell you anything tonight. While you're turning to Proverbs 27, I would tell you that how you feel about God is displayed in what happens when you come to waters that are bitter. How you encounter adversity says everything about your faith. It is not testing God. Coming to bitter waters doesn't test God. Do you know why? He knew that the wood was there and he knew the prophet was there. He's the one that put the prophet and the wood there. Coming to bitter waters doesn't test God because he made Naomi, he made Ruth, and he made Boaz. God already has all the elements of your salvation in every situation that you are ever in. He even said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And he said it in the law. He said it in the prophets. He said it in the writings. And Jesus Christ said it when he gave the great commission. The real question when we come to the waters is not is God being tested. It's 
that you are being tested and what will God find? In this way, we're supposed to count our trials joy because they mature us. We're supposed to count the testing of our faith as something that's beautiful because it, it has the, uh, the opportunity, Peter said, to reveal a faith that is like gold. What if God has brought every bit of adversity into your life because he loves you? Because he wants you to see how you are measuring up so that you can ask him to make you strong in areas. What if he loves you enough to show you exactly where you need to shore up your base? What if he loves you enough to say, hey, this is not an enemy doing this to you. This is me so that when you face the enemy, you win. It'd be almost like he disciplined children he loves. Like he trained them. Like he was helping you. Like he was for you and not against you. Can I tell you, things are difficult in the kingdom. How hungry are you? How thirsty are you? Look at Proverbs 27 and verse 7. He who is full loathes honey. Have you ever eaten so much that you said, I'll never eat again? I do it at almost every meal, which is how I ended up looking like this. Like, God, I'm starving. Hey, Boz, you want to go get some sushi? Bosch has the discipline to eat like four pieces of sushi and some lettuce. I eat it until they've run out of fish. And afterwards, I'm sitting there, I'm like, oh, man, I'm never eating again. I drive home, and on the way, I say, Miss Joe, you, you have some pot roast tomorrow? When you are full, sometimes food is loathsome. But to the hungry... Even what is bitter tastes sweet. See, if you were starving for the interaction with the king, if you were starving for the attention, can I tell you, those of you who are teachers, those of you who have been in education, those of you who have taught preschool, you know that a child will want your attention so much that he'll even be bad to get it. At least I've heard that's true. (laughs) When you're starving for something, When you need interaction with the Father, you'd be happy even if it's bitter. That becomes sweet to you. You know why? Because you know your Father is working with you. He's working on. I've observed through years of marriage counseling that when a marriage is really dead, it's not while they're fighting. Fighting can actually be a really good thing. It's when they've stopped fighting. When they are so dead to each other that they don't even care about anything anymore. In fact, I really worry about people that don't have arguments. I'm like, you must not feel passionate about anything. But when people live on separate sides of the house, when they're content just to see each other and be completely unmoved, when they're not hungry for each other's attention in any way, they're dead. What is your relationship with the Lord like? I can live with the fact that you're like, Lord, I don't understand this, and it hurts, and I'm kind of upset, but I I need your help. Don't go. Where are you going, Lord? (laughs) I could live with that. That's a relationship. But what about the indifference? What about the, God's punishing me. My life is miserable. But praise God, when I'm done, I'll go to heaven. This world's not my home. And not only is all of that unbiblical, it is a terrible attitude. And the preachers who espouse it, shame on them. They may not know any better, so we have mercy for them. The ones that do, shame on them. Okay? He put you in the position that is best for you. 
I have one more scripture to share with you, and then we're going to do something together. We're going to take communion. I want to tell you why I want to take communion. Because it's in communion that we actually see the most bitter of things become the most sweet and precious of things. There is no better example of bitter sweet than communion. I mean, does anybody jump up and down watching Passion of the Christ screaming yes and clapping your hands while he's being crucified? But is there any sweeter thing that has ever happened in the history of the world? See, that's what our lives are like. Turn with me to Luke 15. This last Sunday, I took on tiny projects, little things like the nature of salvation and the nature of God. You know, um, we're completely devoid of ambition. In Luke 15, I finished on Sunday. I want to pick up with you in a verse that I read on Sundays. Luke 15, 16. The son that was wayward. He had run from his father. He had insulted his father. He had taken his inheritance effectively saying, I wish you were dead, father. I'm not going to preach all of that again. That's the kind of message that, you know, I want to stay precious to you. But I'd like you to consider this. It's in the most bitter of circumstances that this son says this. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. How bitter is that? How terrible is that? He has fallen so far that he wants to eat the lowest animal's food. And nobody will give him even that. How afflicted he must have felt. How oppressed he must have felt. Who put him there? He did. His own rebellion. It put him there. Then what do we say about the 17th verse? When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. He can't see his father's men. He can't see them. He doesn't have any idea how they're actually eating. He just knows his father's character. And he's pretty sure based on what he now remembers of his father in the midst of his bitterness that if he can just get back to his father, the bitterness will turn sweet again. You know what? I could leave you with just one thing, is that no matter how bitter your circumstances, no matter how difficult your circumstances, if you could just get back to your father, if you could remember his word in the midst of it, it will become sweet again. I want to submit to you that your life's not any more difficult than anybody else's. You don't understand what I've been through. I don't care. I don't. There are pastors who care. I don't. I don't care about where you've been. I care about where you're going. I've never seen empathy for someone's situation fix their problem. They have really one solution for you to recognize where you're at, come to your senses, and ask God to help you get where you should be. That's what we do. Even if you were very strong, the waters would just get that much more bitter so that you would need God. And if you're very weak, then maybe it doesn't take that much bitter water. But whatever you need to get you there, God will give you because he loves you. And he's working on your behalf.
my heart's desire for you tonight is that you'd love to, you'd learn to love not just the hearing of the word, not just the studying of the word, but the living out of the word and the difficult things. That you'd learn to look at each other when hell has come to earth, when you're facing Antichrist, and go, sweet. I was born for this. That you might be able to look at the bitterness of the cross and say for the joy set before me, I'll endure this. I'll scorn its shame and I'll sit down at the right hand of God. Could you stand to your feet?